Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 15 to 18 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 15 At the end of the evening, Kitty told her mother of the conversation she had with Levin, and in spite of all the pity she felt for Levin, she was glad at the thought that she had received an offer. She had no doubt that she had acted rightly, but after she had gone to bed, for a long while she could not sleep. One impression pursued her relentlessly. It was Levin's face, with his scowling brows, and his kind eyes looking out in dark dejection below them, as he stood listening to her father and glancing at her and Vronsky. And she felt so sorry for him that tears came into her eyes. But immediately she thought of the man for whom she had given him up. She vividly recalled his manly, resolute face, his noble self-possession, and the good nature conspicuous in everything towards everyone. She remembered the love for her of the man she loved, and once more all was gladness in her soul and she lay on the pillow, smiling with happiness. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but what could I do? It's not my fault, she said to herself, but an inner voice told her something else. Whether she felt remorse at having won Levin's love, or at having refused him, she did not know. But her happiness was poisoned by doubts. Lord, have pity on us. Lord, have pity on us, she repeated to herself, till she fell asleep. Meanwhile, there took place below, in the prince's little library, one of the scenes so 
often repeated between parents on account of their favourite daughter. What? I'll tell you what, shouted the prince, waving his arms, and at once wrapping his squirrel-lined dressing gown round him again. That you've no pride, no dignity, that you're disgracing, ruining your daughter by this vulgar, stupid matchmaking. But really, for mercy's sake, prince, what have I done? said the princess, almost crying. She, pleased and happy after her conversation with her daughter, had gone to the prince to say good night as usual, and though she had no intention of telling him of Levin's offer and Kitty's refusal, Still, she hinted to her husband that she fancied things were practically settled with Vronsky, and that he would declare himself so soon as his mother arrived. And thereupon, at those words, the prince had all at once flown into a passion and began to use unseemly language. What have you done? I'll tell you what. First of all, you're trying to catch an eligible gentleman, and all Moscow will be talking of it, and with good reason. If you have evening parties, invite everyone. Don't pick out the possible suitors. Invite all the young bucks. Engage a piano player and let them dance, and not as you do things nowadays, hunting up good matches. It makes me sick, sick to see it, and you've gone on till you've turned the poor wench's head. Levin's a thousand times the better man. As for this little Petersburg swell. They're turned out by machinery, all on one pattern, and all precious rubbish. But if he were a prince of the blood, my daughter need not run after anyone. But what have I done? Why, you've... The prince was crying wrathfully. I know if one were to listen to you, interrupted the princess, we should never marry our daughter. If it's to be so, we'd better go into the country. Well, and we had better. But do wait a minute. Do I try and catch them? I don't try to catch them in the least. A young man, and a very nice one, has fallen in love with her, and she, I fancy. Oh yes, you fancy. And how if she is in love, and he's no more thinking of marriage than I am? Oh, 
that I should live to see it. Ah, spiritualism. Ah, nice, the ball. And the prince, imagining that he was mimicking his wife, made a mincing curtsy at each word. And this is how we're preparing wretchedness for Kitty. She's really got the notion into her head. But what makes you suppose so? I don't suppose. I know. We have eyes for such things, though women folk haven't. I see a man who has serious intentions. That's Levin. And I see a peacock, like his feathered head, who's only amusing himself. Oh, well, when once you get an idea into your head, well, you'll remember my words, but too late, just as with Dolly. Well, well, we won't talk of it, the princess stopped him recollecting her unlucky dolly. By all means, and good night. And signing each other with the cross, the husband and wife parted with a kiss, feeling that they each remained of their own opinion. The princess had at first been quite certain that the evening had settled Kitty's future and that there could be no doubt of Ferontsky's intentions. But her husband's words had disturbed her. And returning to her own room, in terror before the unknown future, she, too, like Kitty, repeated several times in her heart, Lord, have pity. Lord, have pity. Chapter 16 Vronsky had never had a real home life. His mother had been in her youth a brilliant society woman who had had during her married life and still more afterwards Many love affairs notorious in the whole fashionable world. His father he scarcely remembered, and he had been educated in the courts of pages. Leaving the school very young as a brilliant officer, he had at once got into the circle of wealthy Petersburg army men. Although he did go more or less into Petersburg society, his love affairs had always hitherto been outside it. In Moscow, he had for the first time felt, after his luxurious and coarse life in Petersburg, all the charm of intimacy with a sweet and innocent girl of his own rank, who cared for him. It had never entered his head 
that there could be any harm in his relations with Kitty. At balls he danced principally with her. He was a constant visitor at their house. He talked to her as people commonly do talk in society. All sorts of nonsense, but nonsense to which he could not help attaching a special meaning in her case. Although he said nothing to her that he could not have said before everybody, he felt that she was becoming more and more dependent on him, and the more he felt this, the better he liked it, and the teetering of his feelings for her. He did not know his mode of behaviour in relation to Kitty had a definite character, that it is courting young girls with no intention of marriage, and that such courting is one of the evil actions common among brilliant young men such as he was. It seemed to him that he was the first who had discovered this pleasure, and he was enjoying this discovery. If he could have heard what her parents were saying that evening, if he could have put himself at the point of view of the family, and have heard that Kitty would be unhappy if he did not marry her, he would have been greatly astonished, and would not have believed it. He could not believe that what gave such great and delicate pleasure to him, and all above her, could be wrong. Still less could he have believed that he ought to marry. Marriage had never presented itself to him as a possibility. He not only disliked family life, but a family, and especially a husband was, in accordance with the views general in the bachelor world in which he lived, conceived as something alien repellent, and above all, ridiculous. But though Vronsky had not the least suspicion what the parents were saying, he felt on coming away from the Shabatskys that the secret spiritual bond which existed between him and Kitty had grown so much stronger that evening that some step must be taken. But what step could and ought to be taken, he could not imagine. What is so exquisite, he thought, as he returned from the Shabatskys, carrying away with him, as he always did, a delicious feeling of purity and freshness arising partly from the fact that he had not been smoking for a whole evening, and with it 
a new feeling of tenderness at her love for him. What is so exquisite is that not a word has been said by me or by her, but we understand each other so well in this unseen language of looks and tones, that this evening more clearly than ever she told me she loves me, and how secretly, simply, and most of all, how trustfully. I feel myself better, purer. I feel that I have a heart, and that there is a great deal of good in me. Those sweet, loving eyes, when she said, Indeed I do. Well, what then? Oh, nothing. It's good for me, and good for her. And he began wondering where to finish the evening. He passed in review of the places he might go to. Club? A game of Bissik? Champagne with Legatov? No. I'm not going. Chateau des Fleurs. There I shall find a Bronsky. Songs. The Can-Can. No, I'm sick of it. That's why I like the Shabatskys. That I'm growing better. I'll go home. He went straight to his room at Dusset's Hotel. Ordered supper then undressed, and as soon as his head touched the pillow, fell into a sound sleep. Chapter 17 Next day, at eleven o'clock in the morning, Vronsky drove to the station of the Petersburg Railway to meet his mother, and the first person he came across on the great flight of steps was a Bronsky, who was expecting his sister by the same train. Ah, your excellency, cried a Bronsky, whom are you meeting? My mother, Vronsky responded, smiling as everyone did who met Oblonsky. He shook hands with him, and together they ascended the steps. She is to be here from Petersburg today. I was looking out for you till two o'clock last night. Where did you go after the Shabatskys? Home, answered Vronsky. I must own I felt so well content yesterday after the Shabatskys that I didn't care to go anywhere else. I know a gallant steed by token sure, and by his eyes I know a youth in love, disclaimed Stepan Arkadyevitch, just as he had done before to Levin. Vronsky smiled with a look that seemed to say that he did not 
deny it, but he promptly changed the subject. And whom are you meeting? he asked. I, I've come to meet a pretty woman, said Dobronsky. You don't say. Honi suit ki mal i pense. My sister, Anna. Ah, that's Madame Karenina, said Vronsky. You know her, no doubt. I think I do. Or perhaps not. I really am not sure, Vronsky answered heedlessly, with a vague recollection of something stiff and tedious evoked by the name Karenina. But Alexei Alexandrovitch, my celebrated brother-in-law, you surely must know. All the world knows him. I know him by reputation and by sight. I know that he's clever, learned, religious somewhat. But you know that's not, not in my line, said Vronsky in English. Yes, he's a very remarkable man, rather a conservative, but a splendid man, observed Stepan Arkadyevitch, a splendid man. Oh, well, so much the better for him, said Vronsky, smiling. Oh, you've come, he said addressing a tall, old footman of his mother's, standing at the door. Come here. Besides the charm Abronsky had in general for everyone, Vronsky felt of late specially drawn to him by the fact that in his imagination he was associated with Kitty. Well, what do you say? Shall we give a supper on Sunday for the diva, he said to him with a smile, taking his arm. Of course, I'm collecting subscriptions. Oh, did you make the acquaintance of my friend, Levin? asked Stepan Arkadyevitch. Yes, but he left rather early. He's a capital fellow, pursued Oblonsky, isn't he? I don't know why it is, responded Vronsky. In all Moscow people, present company of course accepted, he put in jestingly. There's something uncompromising. They are all on the defensive, lose their tempers as though they all want to make one feel something. Yes, that's true, it is so, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, laughing good-humouredly. Will the train soon be in? Ronsky asked a railway official. The train signalled, answered the man. The approach of the train was more and more evident 
by the preparatory bustle in the station, the rush of porters, the movement of policemen and attendants, the people meeting the train. Through the frosty vapour could be seen workmen in short sheepskins and soft felt boots crossing the rails of the curve line. The hiss of the boiler could be heard on the distant rails and the rumble of something heavy. No, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, who felt a great inclination to tell Vronsky of Levin's intentions in regard to Kitty. No, you've not got a true impression of Levin. He's a very nervous man, and is sometimes out of humour, it's true. But then he is often very nice. He's such a true, honest nature, and a heart of gold. But yesterday there were special reasons, pursued Stepan Arkadyevitch with a meaning smile, totally oblivious of the genuine sympathy he had felt the day before for his friend, and feeling the same sympathy now only for Vronsky. Yes, there were reasons why he could not help being either particularly happy or particularly unhappy. Vronsky stood still and asked distinctly, How so? Do you mean he made your bel-soir an offer yesterday? Maybe, said Stepan Narkadjevich. I fancied something of the sort yesterday. Yes, if he went away early and was out of humour too, it must mean it. He's been so long in love, and I'm very sorry for him. So that's it. I should imagine, though, she might reckon on a better match, said Vronsky drawing himself up and walking about again. Though I don't know him, of course, he added. Yes, that is a hateful position. That's why most fellows prefer to have to do with Clarus. If you don't succeed with them, it only proves that you've not enough cash. But in this case, One's dignity's at stake. But here's the train. The engine had already whistled in the distance. A few instants later, the platform was quivering, and with puffs of steam hanging low in the air from the frost, the engine rolled up with the lever of the middle wheel rhythmically rolling over, up and down, and the stooping figure of the engine driver covered with frost. Behind the tender, setting the platform more and more slowly swaying,
came the luggage van, with a dog whining in it. At last the passenger carriages rolled in, oscillating before coming to a standstill. A smart guard jumped out, giving a whistle, and after him, one by one, the impatient passengers began to get out. An officer of the guards, holding himself erect and looking severely about him, a nimble little merchant with a satchel, smiling gaily, a peasant with a sack over his shoulder. Vronsky, standing beside a Vronsky, watched the carriages and the passengers, totally oblivious of his mother. What he had just heard about Kitty excited and delighted him. Unconsciously, he arched his chest and his eyes flashed. He felt himself a conqueror. Countess Vronskaya is in that compartment, said the guard, going up to Vronsky. The guard's words roused him and forced him to think of his mother and his approaching meeting with her. He did not in his heart respect his mother, and without acknowledging it to himself, he did not love her, though in accordance with the ideas of the sect in which he lived, and with his own education, he could not have conceived of any behaviour to his mother, not in the highest degree respectful and obedient, and the more externally obedient and respectful his behaviour, the less in his heart he respected and loved her. <laughs>